Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the war zone, hear from our correspondent, Kamal McDermott, who's on the ground in Ukraine, and we interview journalist Kristaps Andresens, who gives us the view of the war from Latvia. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 1st of September, day 190. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor Venetia Rainey, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, our Foreign Correspondent Camel McDiarmid, live from Ukraine, and our guest, journalist and host of the Eastern Border podcast, Kristaps Andresens. I started off by asking Dom and Venetia for the latest updates from the war zone. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been busy, we think, on the front line. It's difficult to say Ukraine are, I think, correctly and professionally sticking to this line of of not putting out a lot of information and um, either either containing or corralling or, or in some way controlling journalist access to the the Curzon Front. So it is it is a bit tricky to get uh, to get good information from there. However, it does appear that the the broad advance, that sort of four pronged advance from Ukraine, still seems to be uh, going. Uh, we were talking a couple of days ago, thinking that what they'll probably do is, if they can advance on all four fronts, that's that's great for them. Um, what they might try to do though is see which of those is offering the most success, and then and then back that one. Uh, or two, or however many it is, and 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 sort of box and cox accordingly. So, so we've yet to see any great deviation from that. But like I say, information is very limited. There's a good Wall Street Journal article actually. Um, they've been speaking to people in a in a, a hospital near the area and speaking to injured Ukrainian soldiers who have been at the front. Um, so, according to the Wall Street Journal, according to the people they've interviewed, they say the the fighting is very fierce, and the Ukrainian soldiers are saying that they. They're, they are getting hit with everything from Russia, aviation, air, mortars, artillery, tanks, the works. But there's very few um, Russian soldiers attacking them. So they, they seem to have 
few people, but a lot of equipment still. Um, so that, that's a kind of that's from injured soldiers in the front line. Um, elsewhere, the International Atomic Energy Agency staff arrived about 40 minutes ago, we believe, at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, the uh, so they're, they're there. We don't know how long they're going to be there. We, there's reports that they were there was shelling on the way into that into the plant. And actually, this morning at zero uh, four fifty seven local, the uh, reactor number five was shut down because of a mortar strike. So it is it is quite hot there. Contested about where the where the fire is coming from. Um, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said Russia is doing everything to ensure the safety. And he's speaking at an event in Moscow. He says, we're doing everything to ensure the station is safe, that it functions safely. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't personally believe that. But um, I think that sort of speaks of where they are, where they are coming from. Um, there's also, and this was reported by Roland, our, uh, our senior foreign correspondent, a pro-Russia telegram channel that's saying that actually Ukraine has planned to kidnap the IAEA inspectors and hold them in the plant um, ransoming their release for Russia to uh, uh, re removal of Russian forces from Crimea. And furthermore, this Telegram channel says that these plans were, were, were a British plan and they, they were delivered by Boris Johnson when he went to see Zelensky a few days ago. I mean, it's just utterly farcical. It's quite um, it's utter, utter fantasy. But so it does seem to be something happening at the Zaporizhia plant. The inspectors seem to be there. That There has been some firing in the area uh, and one of the reactors has been shut down. I'll take a pause there. Thanks, uh, Dom. Venetia, would you like to expand on that? Uh, I know you've got several updates away from the war zone for us as well. Yeah, so just to add a few more bits to um, that update on what's going on around Zaporizhia plant, we've had a lot of confusing reports out from that area this morning. Russian state media has been pumping out lots of different stories. They claimed that 60 Ukrainian troops had, had landed somewhere, suggesting that they'd crossed the river somehow, um, probably feeds into this hostage um, false flag sort of story that Don was talking to talking about. We've also seen lots of videos of helicopters flying around the area, some reports of shelling. Um, the Russians have blamed that on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have said it's all the Russians. It does feel like Russia is trying to make the visit for the inspectors as difficult as possible. The inspectors said that they were going to go anyway, even though, as Don said, their route, the convoy's route was literally being shelled as they were on their way there, apparently. Um, the situation there is quite bad. The backup power supply was damaged by shelling that forced this reactor to close. It's the second time in 10 days that shelling has forced a reactor to close. And there's now just one of six reactors functioning at the plant. The IAEA wants to establish some kind of permanent presence there to try and get a grip on the situation. Um, but as Don mentioned as well, it's not clear how long they'll be able to stay for. They initially wanted to stay for several days, but that might now have to they might now have to return later today. Um, and there are a few other bits worth mentioning from Russia. Um, we've heard about the chairman of Luke Oil, one of Russia's major oil producers, has apparently fallen to his death out of the window of a hospital. Russian state media has been very quick to say that it was a suicide. Um, Ravil Maganov was in the hospital being treated for a heart condition. It's quite a high profile hospital. There's normally a lot of surveillance there, a lot of security. This is where Gorbachev was when he died earlier this week, for example. Um, but apparently in this part of the hospital where Ravil Maganov was, there were no security cameras because there were renovations underway. Um, so no ability to sort of prove that it was suicide. We've seen some unconfirmed reports that there wasn't a suicide note, but obviously lots of Russian disinformation around that. What's interesting about this is that Luke Coyle 
is a company, one of the few companies that um, criticised uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, they came out very early on and called the war tragic, said it should stop. And Maganov is actually the second official from that company to die in what I think we can say is suspicious circumstances. Another executive died in May. Um, and then one other story from Russia worth flagging, Gorbachev, as I mentioned, died earlier this week. There was a lot of talk about whether he will be getting a state funeral. We found out yesterday that he won't be. He's now going to have a private funeral on Saturday. Um, and Putin won't even be attending that. He went today to lay a couple of red carnations um, at the memorial for Gorbachev. He stayed about half a minute, according to footage that was broadcast. He sort of went, laid the flowers, crossed himself and left again. Um, apparently, he's too busy to attend the funeral on Saturday. He's going to Kaliningrad, which was a pre-planned trip. Um, that is a major snub. Um, you know, you'll have spoken about yesterday the importance of a state funeral and how unusual it is for one not to be held for a Russian leader. Um, that hasn't happened. A state funeral has been held for every Russian leader since Nikita Khrushchev in 1971. And, and that was over the fact that he was forced out of the party and sort of was in disgrace. So for... For, Chris, for Gorbachev to not be given that kind of state ceremony is a big deal. And for Putin to not even bother to attend the smaller ceremony that will be held is an even bigger deal. It, it shows the war going on over, over Russia's history and the legacy of Gorbachev, what the USSR and its dissolution meant for Russia and the kind of Russia that Putin is trying to build now, as we see from his war in Ukraine. Thank you very much for that, Venetia. Um, Francis, we'll come to you to talk about some energy updates. But first, I'd like to invite um, Campbell McDermott to uh, speak to us. Campbell, you've been in the south of Ukraine, uh, close to the front lines. Would you tell us what have you, what have you seen? What's the morale like amongst the people you speak, you speak to? And what would you want people at home to understand about the offensive? Hi, David. Um, yeah, so I spent a few days or m more than a week, actually, trying to get any kind of... Um access to the the Kherson front um last week and earlier this week um and i have to say that um the ability to find out what is going on um is very limited and uh i think it's one of those situations where the closer you get um doesn't necessarily give you the uh, big picture um so media access to that front is really tightly restricted um and basically that means that you can't sort of um, wing it by meeting a guy in a unit and getting him to take you to the front very easily. Um, so it kind of goes through the, um, the, uh, the channels and they basically uh, control what access you get, which is very little. Um, so we have spoken to a few soldiers along that front line on sort of trips organized by, uh, you know, senior Ukrainian press officers um, but I can't say that they say that they were particularly illuminating um, because they were sort of, you know, very choreographed visits to front lines or not even front lines, you know, rear positions where they would present, you know, a parade of um, soldiers who were very on message. And, um, you know, whatever is happening now in Kherson, they were very um, careful not to telegraph it. Um, so, you know, the messaging we were getting was that nothing was going to happen until they got more heavy weaponry donated um, by the West. And, you know, you, you didn't have the freedom to move around and, and kind of, you know, get an idea of how much, you know, 
the armor and stuff was moving along roads and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like we were very much in the dark there. So we were staying in, in Mikolaev, which is, um, I don't know, maybe 20, 20 miles from, from the front lines there. Um, so, you know, what you would get a sense of is a little bit of the kind of outgoing artillery you would hear off in the distance um, that you wouldn't really be able to triangulate or, you know, have a good idea of where it was. And then um, in the night there would be um, things that go bang and and that would often be um, Russian missiles landing on rear positions in, in Mikolaev. Um, so they tended to be S-300 um, missiles, which are an anti-aircraft defense system, which they're sort of uh, repurposing to for ground attack um and so those uh, those were landing nightly in Mikolaev and um you know we would drive and see what they'd you know hit and often that you know there would be some kind of military position nearby um sometimes not always clear that there was um so so that was that, that was our experience on that front line and um we actually decided that you know such as it was, we, we might be better off um, going to Donbass. So we, we've moved to Donbass, and um, we may go back to Kherson if there's an ability to uh, visit, you know, if, if they make progress and, and there are liberated vi- villages. That's the kind of thing they would be probably keener to show us than, you know, whatever was going on at the front line. So for now, we're in Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine, and um, it's a little bit more relaxed here with what you're able to do um so we've just just got back into the the city now we've just spent the morning uh with a reconnaissance unit at their observation post um and so yeah you can you can sort of set those things up a little bit easier um on this particular stretch of the front Campbell, Campbell, you say that it's slightly more relaxed in kramatorsk i just want to ask um when dom and i were in kiev um about a month ago now um, we, we were struck by how little attention the majority of people were paying to the um, to the air raid sirens. Is is that the same? Is, is that, are you getting that sense in in the east as well that people are just desperate to continue with their with their with their daily lives? It is a bit different here in Kramatorsk. In in Mikolaev, about half of the pre-war population have left, um, but there's still. Um, you know, restaurants and bars open, somewhat curtailed hours, but, you know, you'd go out, we were, it was, you know, quite odd, you know, getting woken in the night by missiles and then, you know, having lunch at a nice um, Italian restaurant, that kind of thing. Um, as as you come into this, um, into Donbass, where, where the, I think the fight, you know, I think maybe it, it's a, uh, you know, there's there's been larger advances here. You know, in, in on the Kherson front, it's it's been largely static since about March. Um, whereas, you know, we've seen in eastern Ukraine, the Russian forces have gradually continued to advance. Um, so there's been the sense of the war creeping closer. Um, but it, it certainly feels a lot closer here. Um, Kramatorsk is. A lot more emptied out. There's fewer shops open. Most things are boarded up. I mean, things are still working. The the buses are still running, and the municipal workers are still out mowing the lawns. Um, but it's um, it's a lot less of the normal daily life continuing, and a lot more of the digging trenches in the 
um, streets and a lot more military around. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Dom and Francis, you've been listening to this. Do you have any questions for Campbell? Yeah, hi, Campbell. I've got one. You may... Uh, I, well, I hope you can answer it. I, I, I'm just... I've been seeing a few reports that actually there's a bit of um, action from Ukraine in, around Kharkiv, and I just wondered if if you had heard that and whether or not there was, if if there is any movement up there, whether that was t- taking advantage of a perhaps depleted Russian force if they if they've had to move equipment and personnel down to the south, um, or, or whether this was this has kind of kept up the tempo of recent days and it's just that. The, there's been a bit more reporting. I just wonder if you heard anything from the northern flank. Hey, Dom. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that we've heard a bit as well. And, you know, I, I would preface whatever I'm about to say by saying that I don't really know and I wouldn't trust, um, you know, my, my gut on what I have heard. But certainly I've heard the same, that there's uh, stuff kind of in the offing around Kharkiv, and there may well be... Um, you know, similar things underway here, I would think. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have any particular sense of whether that would be a kind of large multi-front attack kind of thing or whether it's, you know, they want to... I, I mean, I suspect what it is is they want to put pressure on all of the fronts um, just to, you know, stop Russian forces from moving more stuff down to Kherson, which I think they have done a lot of in recent months yeah and and just just to follow that up have you heard of restrictions for media on the northern front as well is it is it just the Kurzon region where there's been restriction or was it across the, the country at large i'm just just wondering if there's there's some gloriously enormous deception operation going on here but um maybe i'll allow my uh conspiracy theorists to run away with me yeah i have seen um people tweeting and saying that, you know, there's been sort of blanket restrictions on frontline reporting um, imposed across um, all sectors. Um, And, yeah, I don't know to what extent that's being enforced. So, I mean, when we went out today with um, a reconnaissance unit, that was done, you know, not through official channels, and they were very... um, clear about what we were and weren't able to say so you know they don't want to be they don't want it necessarily to be clear what unit and and so forth we're with so you know we may be sort of bypassing some of the official restrictions by um going out with units like that um and yeah as to whether there's some grand plan in the offing i I really couldn't tell it it's really hard to imagine that in this day of um kind of social media and, and, and satellite imagery and so forth that they would be able to put together some um, big sweep without anyone getting wind of it. But um, again, I, I just don't really have any particular insights on that. Hi, Campbell. Francis here. Just wondering what your feeling was generally on the state of Ukrainian morale in the places that you've been. So obviously David was touching on the feelings around reacting to uh air raid sirens and generally people in different places reacting differently to that just wondering generally what your feeling is on on the war now as we've entered into the six month mark and how people are feeling about it um on the record you know all of the ukrainian um soldiers 
of course, will tell us that morale is still high. Um, when you sort of get down to it, sort of chatting generally with soldiers, you know, about their unit and stuff, you can kind of get a sense of how tiring this has been. Um, because a lot of them have been in frontline positions for six months now. There's no system of regular rotation you know so they may move between um a rear position and the front line but they're not getting regular trips home to see family so plenty of people have been in in positions without going home since march and without seeing family since then um other people have been able to go home for two days or they got you know a time at the rear when they're wounded um and so you know of course that's um, that kind of thing builds up over time and is kind of cumulative, the stress. Um, but I think, you know, the, the fact that these guys and women feel like they're fighting a kind of existential battle, you know, I don't think you can underestimate the kind of level of motivation that gives them the, the fact that they feel like they're fighting for their homeland um, compared to, you know, a Russian contract soldier who was, um, you know, deployed here without even, you know, at the start being told that they were going to war. Um, so that's the soldiers. And then um, in terms of Ukrainian people, um, I would say there's a bit of a, a, a sort of divide. Um, you know, there's huge amounts of patriotism patriotism um, in much of the west of the country and um, the big cities. And, you know, it's amazing the kind of um, sense of shared purpose that everyone has um, and the way that um, people just contribute, donate, volunteer um, to get uh, the soldiers everything that they need. Um, so it, and, you know, so NGO workers, you know, foreign NGO workers who have come here said they've never seen a humanitarian response like this. Basically, you know, foreign aid workers aren't really needed. Um, they, like some are here to basically kind of direct money to the volunteers and then the volunteers have the networks to distribute everything. Um so that you know, in general, I would say that the motivation and and the the morale is very high. It gets interesting when you come further east um, because here it's a bit more divided public opinion on whether or not the uh, invasion is a good thing or not. And so there are people here in places like Krematorsk who are pro-Russian and think that they, you know they're sitting here waiting for. Um, liberation from a, a Nazi regime because they've been consuming this um, Russian media and uh, that's what they think. But it's a bit difficult to um, get that perspective across as a foreigner because, well, I mean, you, you feel the kind of suspicion and the, uh, you know, everyone's a lot more closed here and, you know, people keep their opinions closer to themselves and generally don't want to speak to media. And, you know, it's that kind of thing if, if uh, they're speaking to us today and then, the Russians are here next month, and you know they've been on on uh, on record criticizing the Russians. That's that could be dangerous for them, and uh, certainly coming out now and, and being pro-Russian would be dangerous for them. So it's a bit it's a bit harder to kind of um, get people to speak frankly here, um, and uh, it's it's a bit of a strange feeling, kind of not knowing what you know, everyone uh, thinks about the war that's going on literally, you know, in their backyard. Well, thank you so much uh, for that, Campbell. Campbell, is there anything you haven't spoken about that you want our listeners to know before we move on? 
Uh, no, no, if, uh, unless you've got anything. I mean, I'm happy to answer any questions um, about the work that I've been doing, but I'm also happy to, to sit back and uh, listen to some, some other people speak. Campbell, um, you wanted to talk, I know, about the importance of drones and how drones have been a, have been a game-changing weapon for the Ukrainian army. Can you tell us about that? What have you been learning? Yeah, so uh, it's been one of the things I've been interested in, seeing how this sort of very bureaucratic Soviet-type Russian army of you know less than motivated uh, sort of contract soldiers what, what happens when they come up against a uh, a, a military of very motivated soldiers who are fighting for their you know their existence in their homeland and they're um got a lot of support behind them and um and and um there's suddenly like a lot of space to do things differently from before and one of the things that's been quite big in that sphere is, is drones and the way they're being used is quite innovative and quite it's sort of been done kind of on the fly so I went out today with a reconnaissance unit who until february until the you know the february 24th invasion they didn't have drones and so they used to go out and walk in the forest and you know walk until they saw something or, you know, there'd been an observation post with binoculars. And then um, early on in, in, in the war, they got um, drones donated. And there was initially a bit of resistance from the kind of old guard who were like, A, what are these toys? And and B, like, you got these from volunteers, like, the, the, you know, the donations. It was this some kind of corruption. But anyway, the, the, since then, they've, they've figured out how to use these. And I'm sure you've all seen um the kind of the the footage that's put out on social media where they you know they're dropping grenades down the hatches of armored vehicles and um that's really um interesting to see and a a big change but i mean the other big sort of force multiplier role they play is just how much um surveillance and observation they can do um from a drone compared to what they would do on foot and you know things like correcting artillery and stuff you know a a well-used drone crew can be a real force multiplier um but it's interesting because these these are just civilian you know drones dgi mavics and things but so they're you know off the shelf they're like they're supplied by volunteers you know they're fundraising abroad for them you know um Groups like Saint Javelin, who's run out, run by a former journalist out of Toronto, you know, selling these stickers of um, memes. I'm sure you guys have talked about that on the on the podcast before. And then they're raising money, buying drones, and then sending them to these uh, reconnaissance units. And then, um, yeah, so we went out with them today, um, and it's on a you know uh, a, a front line position, you know, where there's nothing in front of them before the Russians, and they can put up a drone and immediately see, you know, that, you know, within 10 seconds that, you know, overlooking Russian positions, they can see, um, they can see where their artillery is landing and they can do, you know, as much surveillance in 10 minutes as, you know, they would take days of walking around before and they're not exposing their, their soldiers to, to the same risk. I mean, although they have to take, uh, various precautions with the drones to ensure that they're, um, you know, not not exposing themselves by using the drones. Um, and the other really interesting thing about them is the way they're taking these civilian drones and sort of doing DIY hacks on them to uh, improve the the security of the way they operate, and also hacking them so they can drop grenades. So they use. 3D printers to um, and you know little um, just DIY kind of. Um, 
uh, computing stuff to to make these attachments to the drone that uses you know, an actuator and you can control the switch through the 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 drone remote control and then it it um, drops the the grenade which is you know it's a standard um, grenade that they use from you know, an automatic grenade launcher, but then they 3D print a, a tail onto it and a, a nose cone with a firing pin to it. Um, so that's something that has been like a real development that's happened in six months. You know, I mean, there were units using it before, but the way that it's become widespread um, is, is really interesting to see. It's really innovative. And, I, you know, the, the Russians are, are doing, are trying to do the same thing, but I don't know if they have the same... Uh, capabilities and those same, uh, you know, networks of, of volunteers and fundraising that are just you know providing these um, bits of kit to you know straight to the front line. They're bypassing all of the military um, bureaucracy. So yeah, that, that's what I was doing this morning was kind of checking out that little world of the war. Well, thank you so much, Campbell. That's fascinating. Um, Dom, I know you had some things to say about the psychological impact of, of drones on soldiers. Yeah, I just wanted to make the point that I've been looking at the, the phenomenon of the, of the use of drones in this in this war. I mean, they've obviously been been used before, not not in this way, not probably not in this in this number and in the the improvised way that Campbell's just been describing. And I just as I've been looking at it since the war started, it, it, it struck a chord with me because I, so I was serving in our army, in the British army um, through the um, Iraq and Afghanistan years and in Afghanistan in particular, um, the IED, the improvised explosive device, um, erroneously called the roadside bomb because they could be, they could be in roads, it could be anywhere, roads, um, streams, bushes, anything, walls, the, the lot. But the, the impact that IED had on on us as an army, as an individual soldier and, and as an army, was up, absolutely profound because it, it shook us to the core. It was a real, it became a real boogeyman. Um, and troops were, you know, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but, you know, a large slice of your mind was thinking about them the whole time with each, with each step outside the, the gate um, you know, is it, am I going to step on a step on an ID? And it knocked our confidence as a as an army. Uh, it, it it raised that that element of doubt in your mind. And if you think about these these drones, it, it it's actually doing could do something very similar here. I mean, not only do you need to keep looking up, um, so your your attention is not is not on the job at hand necessarily, or not not all you focused forward, but you've got to look out for these things. But I mean, just as we, just as the British Army and the American Army and, and everyone else that, did, that were there um, in Afghanistan, we had to completely change our tactics, change our systems, change our procurement methods, change the equipment we used, just change everything because of this new threat. And it took us some, some years, but we got there in, in the end. And I think that we are seeing with drones something similar having to happen here, a complete change in the way, or an addition to the way that the military force conducts itself um, in the in the tactics and in the equipment and in the scaling and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that's 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 notable. And I haven't seen yet seen a, an answer to that. But but a point I make again and again on this pod is that that Russia, this Russian military that we are looking at, is not a learning organisation. So if it is going to require a change of tactics, procedures, all the rest of it, I just don't see this this army being able to to do that. So I think this this phenomenon of drones is very similar to that of the of the IED um, yeah, in Afghanistan. It will play with the Russians' minds and the, and the Ukrainians' ones, of course. But it will, it will get inside their head. It will it will bring in that seed of doubt, such that they're always wondering, oh, what am I being watched right now? Is there a grenade being dropped on me right now? 
because a few hundred feet above the ground, you can't see or hear these things. You certainly can't hear them. You can see them if you're, you know, if you're pretty eagle-eyed and it's a good day, but you, can't, you really can't see them or hear them very well at all. So you know, just that little doubt about, you know, am I being watched right now? Am I about to get um, zapped from up, from above? It was it was very similar. It really shook the British Army, um, the IED threat, and took us years to come up with a counter for that. Um, and and I just I'm watching with great interest how how drones seem to be adopting that that similar sort of boogeyman status. Dom, it's interesting you make the link um, between IEDs and drones um, because when I was in Iraq covering the war against ISIS, I saw the very first kind of uh, you know weaponized drones, and they they were used by. ISIS. So, you know, during the Battle of Mosul and um, a, a, few, a little bit before then, but that was when they first kind of came to the fore, was the first time we saw um, grenades being dropped from drones. And they were like the very first jerry-rigged kind of contraptions. Um, and what was really interesting about that was just seeing the effect it had on Iraqi soldiers that was far in excess of any actual danger they posed to them was the psychological impact that had of hearing a drone overhead, whether it was their, you know, Iraqi military drone or ISIS would just send everyone scurrying and uh, there would be, you know, chaotic shooting in the air. And uh, yeah, it was certainly pretty scary. And um, so that was then. And it was interesting, you know, watching since then the development, because I think, you know, I think back then the, the utility of, of drones, you know, was was more limited, particularly the weaponized drones. But the way they're using them now is so much more sophisticated, both in the surveillance and um, and the artillery spotting and and the dropping of grenades. That the, uh, you know, it's a it's a whole new level. And um, you know, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is the way they process the the data afterwards as well. So it's it's not just um, you know a guy looking through the screen on the drone he's he's um flying it it then gets you know that data you know can get uploaded and uh put in a database and and processed in various ways and you know then you can get the the, the power of computing onto this you know vast array of information you've collected and you know, extract your know, information from that as well so I, I you know i think it's uh, it's kind of hard to overstate um how important they are and and what a game changer they can be and and the potential for their their further development i think is vast as well well thank you so much for that uh, we'd like to in- invite uh, our guest for today chris stapps and drayson's uh, chris stapps thank you so much you got in contact with us uh, at the end of last week when we were talking about the soviet a monument in Latvia that was taken down um, and you had some thoughts about it and wanted to talk to us a little bit about Eastern um, European history and Latvia's relationship with the Soviet Union so we've, we've been chatting a bit um, can you just introduce yourself, tell us what you do and um, give us a sense of how Latvians understood that monument and what did it mean to them? Uh, hello there, uh, it's nice to be here I hope you're hearing me fine um, I'm a journalist from Riga, Latvia I run a podcast called The Eastern Border where I it started out as explaining explaining Soviet history to Westerners, you know, being a native here and everything. And then slowly I also moved to do some real journalism. And now that's my main profession. I'm going to, back, going to go back to Ukraine later in the September as well to do reporting from there. I've also published a couple of times on Foreign Policy magazine and in local media. So, you know, one of my listeners uh, basically who is a fan of your show told me that I'm the most qualified to speak about this whole situation with, uh, with our monument being a historian as I am. 
So I'm really, really here. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining. Um, so can you refresh our memories? What was this monument and why did Latvia take it down? Well, this was a monument set up in 1985 on the 50th anniversary of uh, <clears throat> liberation of Riga, basically. The monument was taken down because in the later years, it had already, since about 2008, stopped being a monument about World War II at its end. And every year on the 9th of May, local Russians, local pro-Putin supporters were gathering there, waving imperial flags and blatantly yelling in our faces, we can do this again. Well, not recognizing the fact that Soviet occupation meant a lot of trauma and deaths and suffering for our people. We suffered in Stalin's gulags and we were by no means, I would call, liberated. We were just occupied and forcibly annexed into the Soviet Union. After all, we had been an independent country with no ties to the Soviet Union before. We, get our, we got our independence from the Russian Empire. And since 2008, yeah, Putin had been using this monument to organize very pro-Russia, pro-Kremlin meetings, agitate anti-Western sentiments, and, and there were like no Soviet flags in the previous 9th of May celebrations. There were just Russian imperial flags, and they were just sprouting all sorts of anti-EU and anti-West nonsense there. And in 2020, I went there on the 9th of May, since I wanted to check if it was actually uh, something related to the war. And, you know, my English is fairly well. I can pretend to be an American for the locals. So I got, got myself with my crew dressed up uh, carrying a United States flag. And we brought sort of flowers there to be put down for the other allies, since it's a World War II memorial. And, you know, I have a nice recording on my Facebook page where we were called Nazis. We were called filthy Americans, filthy Westerners. You have no place there. Yeah, that just explain why this isn't really a World War II issue. This is an issue of this just being turned into a religion for Putin's supporters to gather support. Can I ask, was, was there any backlash to taking the monument down then? Uh, how did sort of Latvian society react to it? Well, Latvians reacted extremely positively. And there was, there was some anger in the Telegram channels, in the Russian Telegram channels, because due to our government's incredibly foolish integration policy in the 90s, we have a lot of people who speak Russian. Ethnic Russians are about 25% of our population, still up to this day. And a lot of them just live in this inform information bubble uh, created by Putin, because you know they, they basically only absorb that. But um, there, were, there weren't any massive protests. There were about 20 to 30 people who came to protest, and they were some of them were very provocative, about five to six people were arrested. I think many, I think about 20 were kind of uh, brought into custody, but then later released, but about five were arrested. But these were the same people who are right now involved in damaging Ukrainian refugees' cars and, and stuff like that. In general, this whole move was very well, very well received by the Latvian population, the Latvians who live in Latvia. We had a protest action, and this was an initiative, a public initiative, by the way. This didn't come from our government. This was a result of a petition signed by uh, Latvians to demand that our government finally remove all those Soviet objects, which for us mean, you know, 50 years of being cut off from the West and, and, and a lot of suffering. Can we talk a little bit about um, the invasion of Ukraine? What was what, what, what was Latvia's experience? How did how did Latvians think of and view the invasion? And what were their reactions? We we know that the government has been incredibly supportive of the Ukrainian government, but for for people on the ground, for, for Latvians themselves, uh, how did they view it? See, a lot of Latvians were born in the same country, me included, as Ukraine was in the USSR, and we all were there unwillingly. 
you know. So we in the post-Soviet sphere, that's how I like to call it, ex-Warsaw back countries, as you wish. Some people might take offense of that. I don't know. But um, we knew that this would probably be coming about since 2004. I had been warning on my show about the fact that Russia is extremely aggressive for, I don't know, four or five years already. And right now we've switched our Soviet history podcast to war broadcasting because I had a plan already set up what I would do when this invasion happened. We weren't surprised here. We were just kind of happy that, you know, all these years people were calling us paranoid and that we should, you know, Russia's not going to do anything. But the problem is that we also often see Putin's internal propaganda markets, the things that took the Western world by surprise, well, they were very well known, known for us. For example, we had seen all this time when Zhirinovsky had gone on stage with Solovyov and how they had stated that Iceland needs to be nuked and everything. So even like those proton torpedoes that Kishilev recently stated he, he, he could nuke Britain with, yeah, he had been speaking about them before as well. Just nobody noticed and nobody seemed to care. Nobody seemed to take them seriously. But due to our own history, yeah, when Russia says they're going to invade someone and that they can repeat the invasion and they can occupy you, well, we just listened to Putin and believed him. And that's why we were kind of ready. And this is why, you know, a lot of people were, were really willing, willing uh, to help Ukraine. And there's massive, massive support of Ukrainians here uh, in Latvia. And our, our folks are basically doing everything that we can in, in a lot of cases. Chris Snaps, you've, you've, touched on this in some of your answers but could you give us a sense of how how does Latvia think of its Soviet past now I mean this is what more than 30 years now since since the fall of the Soviet Union but and and how and how has the war in Ukraine potentially changed that well you see the Soviet past there is some nostalgia among some elderly people who only remember the good stuff you know because there were there were some positives they remember basically that the ice cream was tastier but in general if you look economically the Soviet Union drained us. In the interwar period since 1918 up to 1940, we were on about the same level of GDP per capita as Netherlands or Belgium. Then the Soviets came, they killed a lot of our people, and you know that's why we are in a poor economical situation, the two guys in the West. We were just basically denied this whole economic growth situation. And we have documents that prove that Soviets basically drained us of our resources and, and gave it away to Moscow and everything. We were one of those donator regions. About 17% of our of our yearly GDP was transferred to other regions. And we always felt like Western people instead of being inside of, inside of this Soviet thing. So it's a lot of trauma, a lot of tragedy. For example, my grandmother... My grandmother came from a family of a Lutheran pastor, and so she was repressed extra carefully because, you know, they wouldn't even allow you to go to church. They would take lists, and if you would go to church, you could get uh, harassed at your at your workplace as well. And that's just one example. And, and you couldn't celebrate Latvian holidays. There was a massive there was a massive push to exterminate Latvian culture as such, and, and force Russification, as we call it, everywhere. The same thing as is happening right now in Ukraine or the fact that they don't even admit the Ukrainian is a real nation, a real culture, they think it's a brainwashed thing. And right now, it's it's just activated a bit. Right now, we've all become way more serious and somber about this whole situation, because there is a lot of fear that if Putin wins in Ukraine, we could be next. So there's a lot of sentiment in Latvia that we should do as much as we can to help Ukraine, so that to ensure our own security and safety. Thank you so much, Chris. It's really interesting hearing your perspective on this issue and, and the broader themes of, of what's going on in Latvia at the moment. Um, just one 
question I have, first of all, I've got I've got several, is was there any evidence that this has been used? Uh, the monument being removed, being used by those either sympathetic to Russia or Russia themselves in uh, criticising Latvia. Um, I mean, we've spoken previously on the podcast when the removal of the monument first happened about the potential risk of how this plays into a Kremlin narrative about Nazism uh, in Eastern Europe and them seeking to eradicate it. And obviously, of course, given that this was a monument that could be interpreted as an anti-fascist monument, I'm not saying it was, but could be interpreted as such. I, I sort of wonder if there was any concern about how this could be used by the Kremlin propaganda machine for their own purposes. But has there been any evidence of that? Well, two things. Number one, they've been calling us Nazis all the time since since forever, including in the Soviet era. If you look at any of the famous Soviet movies, such as like 17 Moments of Spring, Latvian, and Lithuanian and Estonian actors were always cast to play the evil Nazis. So it's kind of a thing. We're just used to it in a way. And secondly, there were, I was surprised because we have an election in, on October the 1st, but no one's, really, no one's really used it as much. What was used is that apparently some concerned Russian diplomats had um, signed a petition and a request for the United Nations to kind of pause this destruction of these Soviet monuments, at least for a bit until investigation is being done. But this request came in a day too late as we had removed the monument already. And so it was weird. However, we couldn't comply with the request from the United Nations to pause the removal of the monument because it literally came in too late. And after this, well, after this United Nations thing, right now Russia is posting all over the place uh, that we have ignored the United Nations and and we are just non-complying with the United Nations standards and all that stuff. However, like I said, the request came in a day late. (laughs) Thanks, United Nations bureaucracy, I guess. Or maybe it was done on purpose, too. I don't know, just to discredit us and portray us as a nation that does not observe United Nations regulations, even though they themselves in Russia just ignore such things as, as you know, foreign, foreign deals, because they have publicly stated that their constitution and their internal courts are well, higher, jurisdictionally speaking, than any foreign, uh, foreign deals they have signed. So it's a bit weird. But this has been the only uh, major, major kind of blowback to our country since... Yeah, this all gets lost in the whole Ukrainians are evil propaganda because we we've we've we in the Baltics have always been the evil guys, uh, evil guys in, in Russian media. Although that hasn't stopped a lot of Russian tourists coming in into the Baltics, especially Yurmala, which I find quite funny when I, in the news I read how they're. Uh, how we are all evil Nazis and, and we're terrible, terrible people. And that was in Ria Novosti. And the second article states that, oh, no, now Russians can't get their tourist visas anymore that as easily, which I find funny because if we are so oppressive and so evil, why do you want to come here for your vacations in mass? So. Um, and just one more from me, because you've actually answered one of my other questions in your response there, is we spoke at length yesterday on the podcast about the death of, of Gorbachev. And something I remarked upon is, of course, in the Baltics, he's viewed quite differently because of some of his actions during his, his time in office. Just wanted to ask your opinion on Gorbachev and also the general manner in which he's seen following his death in, in the last couple of days in Latvia. Well, I believe that he's a nuanced figure. I have a lot of things that I want to praise him for, but there's a lot of things he's wrong. And, and he's one of these people whose death now reminds us that nuance should be taken and care should be taken when discussing some historical events and personas, since 
he's by no means either black or white in this sense, since after all, he really ordered the violent suppressions of our us in the Baltics leaving the USSR. He tried to economically blockade Lithuania and he com- mis- mishandled the Chernobyl catastrophe completely, at least in the beginning. And, you know, he's also hated because he instituted dry law and kind of a prohibition in, in the whole of Soviet Union. But he's certainly done a lot of good as well. He could have done much worse. And, and if, you, if you have to rate him in the list of Soviet leaders, then he's definitely, he's definitely, you know, ranking above others. However, that doesn't make him any better. Uh, he's still, you know, a Soviet leader. But uh, in general, in Latvia, it's been extremely quiet. There, was, there were like a couple of news about him being dead, but it's not a major news issue here. It was just another article because of, you know, it's left to historians, basically. Uh, we, we don't take it as personally. Now, in Lithuania, in Lithuania, it's different. Uh, down south in Lithuania, they are kind of joyful even. I know that one of the ministers of Lithuania even called Gorbachev a terrible, terrible leader because, after all, in Vilnius, uh, 13 people died while being, while being crushed by tanks, uh, by his orders. So I, I believe that he's a complex figure, but in Latvia, he's viewed mostly neutrally. In Lithuania, he's hated more, definitely. That's so interesting hearing hearing your perspective on that. And I think, as you say, it echoes what we were saying on the podcast yesterday, that he, there is so many different sides to to Gorbachev that no doubt he will be debated for, for many, many decades as a consequence of a consequence of that. I mean, it is very revealing to me that it's not really being talked about in Latvia. And because it, it reveals the extent to which he's not really seen as one of uh, your leaders, you know, as a, as a people that you've, you've separated yourselves from your Soviet past. I mean, if it was still, there was a, many people who once saw him as a, as, a, as, a, as a leader of Latvia, then it would be presumably a much bigger story. And the fact that it, that isn't the case, um, as I say, seems to un- underline the manner in which a line has been drawn from the Soviet past to the Latvian future. And my final question on that is, what does the future of Latvia look like, do you think, within the broader context of, of the European continent as things have evolved in the past six months? Do you think Latvia will have a big role to play in the conversations that will take place as part of the geopolitical readjustment or, or not? Well, depends on what you think, what you think is going to happen. See, um, I personally hold the belief that Russia is going to fall apart eventually. doesn't matter if it happens as a result of this war or in 20 years, because I view, because of my historical sources, Russia as a lost colonial empire, except land-based instead of naval. So I think, I think that we will have, um, we will have some, we'll have to deal with a lot of refugees coming in from Russia as we do right now with Ukraine and the Baltics. Well, we're, we're going to have to work together, certainly with Lithuania and Estonia. Latvia as alone, I don't think will be a, a massive player in anything because we're a small country. Only 2 million people live in Latvia. But I think that one thing that's going to happen definitely after this war is we're going to have closer ties among Baltic countries. And that's going to include Poland as well. Because we are currently already experiencing an unprecedented level of cooperation between Finland, the Baltic countries, and Poland. And I think that this, together, well, together with our cooperation with Ukraine, could, re- could lead to a stronger political bloc inside of EU and stronger economical ties. So that might help the growth of the Eastern European region in general. 
Chris Tabs, can I uh, just jump in? Hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's fascinating stuff. I just wonder if you could give us a view of what's happening on the border with Belarus, because I think there's been an uptick in the last couple of weeks of um, either either genuine or or Belarusian state aggravated uh, migration across the border. I think there's been a few bit, bit of trouble at the um, at the border fencing and what have you down there. We, we, we saw this some months ago, but I've, I've just been reading some reports that it's, it's sort of come back uh, a couple of, in the last couple of weeks just as a, as a means of yeah, Belarus, Lukashenko sort of t- turning the tap on um, as another, another fault line to put a bit of pressure on. Just wondered if, you, if you'd heard that and what the, what the view was from, from Latvia. Well, well, we uh, just read about this. Uh, I think yesterday we arrested a person who tried to smuggle in about 30,000 euros from Belarus to EU. But yeah, we finished our border fence and we have uh, tight border controls there uh, thanks to cooperation with our NATO and EU allies. And we've, we've, been looking at very, we've been looking at this very carefully since after the 2020 elections in Belarus, which, well, Lukashenko just falsified completely. And after the incident with uh, the Belarusian opposition, opposition journalist who was basically kidnapped by, by Belarusians as he was flying from Greece to to Lithuania, we've been taking all this situation with Belarus very, very seriously. We've been trying to help as many Belarusians uh, who are against the oppressive regime of Lukashenko to get to some safe haven, and we've been very supportive of, of them as well. However, Lukashenko, he's he's viewed more like a, as a joke. See, um, as a threatening joke and as a crazy person, like a, he yesterday, for example, publicly stated that uh, Putin has given him nuclear weapons and the permission to launch them at will. Although that's obviously a massive lie, and I doubt that Putin has given him any, but that was his public statement. And Lukashenko is seen like uh, basically a director of a Soviet kolkhoz that has uh, has taken away too much power. Surely he's pushing on the borders and everything, but, well, as Belarusian forces are now on the Ukrainian border, the few border guards that, I don't know, sometimes throw rocks at our border and and deal with the migrants, uh, that's not a major issue. We're dealing with this safely. There is no major flow of organized migrant crisis like it was seen last year or, or a couple of months earlier. Uh, no new reports on that. Uh, if it's happening, it's happening literally right now. But um, I'll be back in, in Riga on Tuesday. I'm currently on a, I'm currently on a little vacation. I'm not talking to you from Latvia right now. Uh, I'm just away for a few days, so I'll have to check up on that when I get back home. Well, Chris Tapps, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you, thank you very much to our followers who, who put, put you in touch. Is there anything um, you'd like to talk about that we haven't asked you or anything, anything you'd like to say to our listeners you think they should know? Well, um, yes, it would be very nice of you if you would go and check out my podcast, Eastern Border. But uh, as of right now, the most important part is that I cover a lot of Russian propaganda channels. I follow all the pro-war telegram channels and their reactions to Gorbachev's death were very telling. And they also deny the existence of NAFO, for example, because they don't comprehend it. And I think it'll be interesting to watch in the future the whole internal struggles of uh, pro-war Russians, because Putin, I think, has created this level of intensity of propaganda, basically portraying all Ukrainians as these evil people that he can't go back from. And now every time he tries to kind of de-escalate because he can't push forward, he's coming into contact uh, conflict with uh, Girkin and his radical supporters. So I think uh, that's going to be a thing to watch when um, Russian pro-war side goes into full conflict. And I will, of course, uh, and I will, of course, be covering that.
and I certainly hope that I'll be able to you know, work with Dom a bit when I get back to Ukraine in the 22nd of September. Um, unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time. Uh, so, Francis, I realise we've just got a couple of rather big updates, actually, around visas and energy. If you'd talk us through them, and then I'll come to all of you just for your final thoughts. Sure. Well, I'll whiz through these. Obviously, I've focused quite heavily on the energy front of this war in recent weeks. And there's been another development in the past 24 hours, which I think we should report on, which is that Hungary yesterday boasted that it had signed a new gas contract with Russia and celebrated blocking Ukraine's call for an outright ban on Russian tourists entering the EU, which I'll come to afterwards. Obviously, this comes in the context of several European governments, uh, including Germany, vowing to wean themselves off the dependence on Russian gas. Many are rationing rationing energy in case the Kremlin turns off the taps, which, of course, it's now looking increasingly likely they will do completely. Budapest has already consistently opposed EU sanctions on gas, which require a unanimous support from all 27 member states, of which Hungary is one. But they're selling this as, and I'm quoting here a cabinet minister and international spokesman for Hungary, that Hungary's energy supply is safe. And clearly he goes on to elaborate on the fact that this is offering security on the energy front for Hungarian citizens, um, as opposed to, of course, the volatility on the energy market that's being experienced by other powers in Europe. He's obviously, uh, as, as well, it's worth saying that Hungary is, is about 85% dependent on Russian gas. And if you were taking a more sympathetic view, you could say that they, they literally cannot afford not to take this stance on energy because it would be such a complete and utter disaster for them. But again, I would perhaps counter that by saying that I think that if there had been a more robust, unified, forward-thinking response on the energy crisis from within the European Union several months ago, then it may well have been possible for, if there had been the desire there, for energy to be more freely shared between countries. Uh, some, of course, have got more than others um, in an attempt to ensure a united front that could have then seen a more robust sanctioning um, but it, of course, all of this plays into the fact that it may well be that Hungary is more sensitive to the disaster that's coming down the road for Europe, given given the energy crisis. Although my rebuttal to that would be the point that I made the other day, which is for me, this isn't really a challenge of of it being inevitable that the European populations who are going to be suffering sky high energy bills um, cannot be persuaded to this, that regardless of what political leaders say, they are going to be angered by this and their support for Ukraine will wane. Rather, I think it's a challenge of persuasion. I think that it is up for to European leaders, uh, inclu- including whoever the new, next British Prime Minister will be, which we'll find out in a matter of days now, to say to the publics of Europe that, uh, yes, it's going to be potentially a very challenging winter, but remember Butcher, remember what is being fought for on the battlefields of Ukraine at present and the sacrifices that are being made for a vision of what the world should look like, one where might isn't right. And remember that Europe has a long memory in these matters. Large parts of Europe have been occupied by territorial 
monstrous regimes in the 20th century. And if you appeal to that, then I see no reason why people will not be willing to make sacrifices. So that's the update on the energy front. Uh, With regard to uh, other updates, um, slightly um, another issue that's been rumbling on in the background, but again of significance, is relating to the visa issue. Roland touched on this very briefly yesterday, um, but actually the EU has agreed to suspend a visa facilitation deal with Russia. It stops short of a blanket ban, which was what was requested by Ukraine. But nonetheless, uh, the bloc's foreign policy chief has said that the move will significantly reduce the number of new visas issued to Russians by member states. I quote, we agreed on full suspension of the European Union Russia visa facilitation agreement. This will significantly reduce the number of new visas issued by the EU member states. It's going to be much more difficult. It's going to take longer. And so I think we can say that actually this is stronger than we expected. Um, the speculation prior to this is that they wouldn't perhaps go quite this far. And indeed, that would speak to what the Kremlin reaction has been, which is they have actually lambasted the European Union this morning uh, on this point. Uh, Kremlin spokesman has said that they're looking for options at how to respond. And I think we can expect uh, further strong words later today. And uh, just a final couple of updates, very, very briefly. Um, North Korea is hinting at an interest in sending construction workers to help rebuild Russian-occupied territories in the country's east. Again, just speaks to the fact that because Russia has been so short on allies in in this war, it's looking everywhere. And of course, uh, North Korea is one of the few that is willing to vocally support uh, Russia on its uh, on its war in Ukraine. But again, what does that say about you as a power if you're resorting to uh, getting support from the North Koreans? But uh, anyway, regardless, I move on. Um, and the last story is about a Russian soldier shooting two FSB, that's of course the Russian intelligence services officers in occupied Kazan after he was caught swigging alcohol while in uniform. And um, that's according to a Moscow investigation. Um, the soldier's drinking companion, who was a sergeant, was also killed in this drunken shootout with the FSB officers. And uh, what's the significance of this? Well, it's an incident that shows the ill-disciplined state of the Russian military in Ukraine, I think it's fair to say. And the fact that this is being reported quite heavily, indeed we've done a big story on it, James Kilner, who often appears on this podcast, has done so, speaks to the fact that this is going to be a rather embarrassing story that will be doing the rounds and one I'm sure that Moscow would, would be keen to avoid. So those are, are the other significant updates in the last 24 hours. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for, for covering those. Um, I think it's probably time to ask you all for your final thoughts. I'll ask uh, Francis and Campbell first. Uh, Dominic, Dom, I know you've got an update on some of your own uh, reporting you'd like to give our listeners, and then we'll come to we'll come to our guest uh, for the final thought at the end. So maybe, Dom, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. Just very quickly, I owe you an answer about uh, my um, meeting yesterday or with uh, Richard Miles, who's the Australia's Deputy Prime Minister and also serves as the as a Defence Minister. I um, I hinted strongly that I was going to be speaking to a, a senior member of the Australian administration, and um, and you were brilliant listeners you, you, you sent in dozens and dozens of questions um, for him and they're really good I made a huge amount of notes uh, so I went up to Barrow and Furnace yesterday looking at submarines Britain uh, commissioned number five of seven new um, astute class hunter killer attack submarines and um, Mr Miles was there under the AUKUS deal the Australia UK US deal which is a technology technology collaboration deal but but, the, but submarines is the kind of the biggest moving part in it at the moment so that's why he was there 
Um, I had been promised 20 minute interview with him, then it became 10, then it became five, and then guess what happened? Yeah, obviously, it, it all fell out, fell out of bed. So I managed to grab one question uh, during the, the press conference. Uh, and basically, the, the reason was that his bilat with Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, massively overran, which I was told was, was a good sign because they were actually getting down to, to business about, about submarines and, and support for Ukraine and what have you. So, you know, it, it does seem to have been. Um, uh, their gain, our, our loss, because I didn't get any any time with him. But I, I I knew I was only going to get one question, so I asked him about Bushmaster because the previous administration um, that was in, I think it was, it was March this year, wasn't it? That Mr. Miles uh, came in at the Labour Party. But the previous administration had promised sixty Bushmaster. These are protected armored vehicles for um, for Ukraine. We use them in the in the in the British military in certain select areas, and they are fantastic. Um, so sixty were promised. The previous administration sent sixteen. I think the current Australian administration have sent 10. I think one has been destroyed. Um, we've seen evidence of. But I asked Mr. Miles about, about that and he confirmed that yes, they are going to send the remaining whatever they have to take my socks off to do the, to do the maths but 60 take away 16, 10 and 1. Um, but the remaining 40 odd 30-odd uh, 30 30-odd 30 vehicles will go. I also asked him about training. I said is, is Australia considering um, sending trainers to the UK to help train Ukrainian soldiers just like New Zealand have done and he sort of uh, rumbled, rumbled a bit and said he's he's actively considering it so that's as strong as we can get with them um, uh, for Mr Miles about about that but I have uh, I, we left on good terms and hopefully I'm going to get a telephone interview with him in the near future so I will ask him all the questions that you put to me and and, and thank you so much I, I, I hope I've replied to everybody that, that did ask a question if I've not I will get round to that um, but thank you so much for um, for keeping me on the straight and narrow and telling me all about Landbridge and Darwin and what have you. Fascinating stuff. And the Solomon Islands. Oh, I could go on. Anyway, I shouldn't. But thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dom, for that. And thank you again to our listeners who've been sending in, in questions. Um, this is why we do it. And, yeah, we, we hope, we hope Dom, you do get that interview and you're able to put all of our listeners' questions to the Defence Minister. Um, Campbell, can I come to you next? Sure. Well, I, I didn't really have any final thoughts to offer other than to say thanks very much, for having me on and how much I enjoyed hearing from Chris Stubbs and we'll, uh, it's good to get a new podcast recommendation to uh, put into rotation. So, uh, yeah, thanks all very much and have a nice day. Thanks, Campbell. Uh, Francis Sternley. So my final thought is today is September the 1st, which is the day that typically children in Ukraine would start the new school year. But of course, due to the invasion back in February, around 270 schools won't go back for the simple fact that they've been destroyed by the war and another 2,400 schools have been damaged. So most pupils will be studying online. We know from the lockdowns, of course, that online education is by no means as effective as in-house education. But more broadly, it just speaks to the human tragedy and human cost of this war. Uh, and, of course, there'll also be huge concerns as well about the kind of education that children will be receiving in those occupied areas. So we've talked a lot about grand strategy today, but I just wanted to reflect on that one small element of, of what it's like to be experiencing the reality and the consequences of Putin's brutal invasion today. Thank you very much, uh, Francis, for that. Um, Chris Stapps, can we come to you for, as our guest for your final thoughts? 
thank you. I have just two little things I wanted to say. Uh, one is that uh, I think about a week ago, we published an episode, which was an interview with an expert on drones, where we spoke about how effective commercial drones are, and then it shifted to how can they be hacked, how can they be detected, how useful they are in general, and about cyber warfare in this war. So if you want to you know, give us a listen, then probably drone cyber warfare episode should be your first one. And secondly, about a thing that happened in Athens that uh, managed to get me in the news in Poland and Sweden. See, um, we're here being Latvians in, in Athens, and um, I'm here with my mom because my mom hadn't been outside of Latvia since 1985, so it's her little vacation while I'm still working. And we went out yesterday evening in one of the local cafes, and I'm, I'm sitting there with my Ukraine cap on my head because I just wear those uh, all the time, and the, we were speaking Latvian with my mother, and the, there were Russian tourists apparently sitting just next table to us and apparently they either noticed that we speak latvian or they spotted my hat and they started publicly very loudly talking about how we are all nazis and how they would totally beat us up if it wasn't for the cops which is a nice little unpleasant experience just a thing and uh, i posted about this on twitter and apparently a lot of people have had these experiences so you know something to think about when we talk about these whole visas for russian tourists in the eu Thank you very much for having me once again, and it's been a great hour. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.